Part three, chapters twenty three and twenty four of Democracy in America, Volume two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. Democracy in America, Volume two, by Alexis de Tocqueville, translated by Henry Reeve. Part three, chapter twenty three which is the most warlike and most revolutionary class in democratic armies it is a part of the essence of a democratic army to be very numerous in proportion to the people to which it belongs as i shall hereafter show on the other hand men living in democratic times seldom choose a military life democratic nations are therefore soon led to give up the system of voluntary recruiting for that of compulsory enlistment the necessity of their social condition compels them to resort to the latter means, and it may easily be foreseen that they will all eventually adopt it. When military service is compulsory, the burden is indiscriminately and equally borne by the whole community. This is another necessary consequence of the social condition of these nations, and of their notions. The government may do almost whatever it pleases, provided it appeals to the whole community at once, it is the unequal distribution of the weight, not the weight itself, which commonly occasions resistance. But as military service is common to all the citizens, the evident consequence is that each of them remains but for a few years on active duty. Thus it is in the nature of things that the soldier in democracies only passes through the army, whilst among most aristocratic nations the military profession is one which the soldier adopts, or which is imposed upon him, for life." this has important consequences amongst the soldiers of a democratic army some acquire a taste for military life but the majority being enlisted against their will and ever ready to go back to their homes do not consider themselves as seriously engaged in the military profession and are always thinking of quitting it such men do not contract the wants and only half partake in the passions which that mode of life engenders they adapt themselves to their military duties, but their minds are still attached to the interests and the duties which engage them in civil life. They do not, therefore, imbibe the spirit of the army, or rather, they infuse the spirit of the community at large into the army and retain it there. Amongst democratic nations, the private soldiers remain most like civilians. Upon them, the habits of the nation have the firmest hold, and public opinion most influence. It is by the instrumentality of the private soldiers especially that it may be possible to infuse into a democratic army the love of freedom and the respect of rights, if these principles have once been successfully inculcated on the people at large. The reverse happens amongst aristocratic nations, where the soldiery have eventually nothing in common with their fellow citizens, and where they live amongst them as strangers, and often as enemies. In aristocratic armies the officers are the conservative element because the officers alone have retained a strict connection with civil society, and never forego their purpose of resuming their place in it sooner or later. In democratic armies, the private soldiers stand in this position, and from the same cause. It often happens, on the contrary, that in these same democratic armies, the officers contract tastes and wants wholly distinct from those of the nation, a fact which may be thus accounted for. Amongst democratic nations, the man who becomes an officer severs all the ties which bound him to civil life. He leaves it forever. He has no interest to resume it. His true country is the army, since he owes all he has to the rank he has attained in it. He therefore follows the fortunes of the army, rises or sinks with it, 
and henceforward directs all his hopes to that quarter only. As the wants of an officer are distinct from those of the country, he may perhaps ardently desire war, or labour to bring about a revolution at the very moment when the nation is most desirous of stability and peace. There are, nevertheless, some causes which allay this restless and warlike spirit. Though ambition is universal and continual amongst democratic nations, we have seen that it is seldom great. A man who, being born in the lower classes of the community, has risen from the ranks to be an officer, has already taken a prodigious step. He has gained a footing in a sphere above that which he filled in civil life, and he has acquired rights which most democratic nations will ever consider as inalienable. Footnote. The position of officers is indeed much more secure amongst democratic nations than elsewhere. The lower the personal standing of the man, the greater is the comparative importance of his military grade, and the more just and necessary is it that the enjoyment of that rank should be secured by the laws. End footnote. He is willing to pause after so great an effort and to enjoy what he has won. The fear of risking what he has already obtained damps the desire of acquiring what he has not got. Having conquered the first and greatest impediment which opposed his advancement, he resigns himself with less impatience to the slowness of his progress. His ambition will be more and more cooled in proportion as the increasing distinction of his rank teaches him that he is more to put in jeopardy. If I am not mistaken, the least warlike and also the least revolutionary part of a democratic army will always be its chief commanders. But the remarks I have just made on officers and soldiers are not applicable to a numerous class which in all armies fills the intermediate space between them. I mean the class of non-commissioned officers. This class of non-commissioned officers, which have never acted a part in history until the present century, is henceforward destined, I think, to play one of some importance. Like the officers, non-commissioned officers have broken in their minds all the ties which bound them to civil life. Like the former, they devote themselves permanently to the service, and perhaps make it even more exclusively the object of all their desires. But non-commissioned officers are men who have not yet reached a firm and lofty post at which they may pause and breathe more freely, ere they can attain further promotion. By the very nature of his duties, which is invariable, a non-commissioned officer is doomed to lead an obscure, confined, comfortless and precarious existence. As yet, he sees nothing of military life but its dangers. He knows nothing but its privations and its discipline. More difficult to support than dangers, he suffers the more from his present miseries, from knowing that the constitution of society and of the army allow him to rise above them. He may, indeed, at any time obtain his commission, and enter at once upon command, honours, independence, rights, and enjoyments. Not only does this object of his hopes appear to him of immense importance, but he is never sure of reaching it till it is actually his own. The grade he fills is by no means irrevocable. He is always entirely abandoned to the arbitrary pleasure of his commanding officer, for this is imperiously required by the necessity of discipline. A slight fault, a whim, may always deprive him in an instant of the fruits of many years of toil and endeavour. Until he has reached the grade to which he aspires, he has accomplished nothing. Not till he reaches that grade does his career seem to begin. A desperate ambition cannot fail to be kindled in a man thus incessantly goaded on by his youth, his wants, his passions, the spirit of his age, his hopes, and his fears. 
Non-commissioned officers are therefore bent on war, on war always and at any cost, but if war be denied them, then they desire revolutions to suspend the authority of established regulations, and to enable them, aided by the general confusion and the political passions of the time, to get rid of their superior officers and to take their places. Nor is it impossible for them to bring about such a crisis, because their common origin and habits give them much influence over the soldiers, however different may be their passions and their desires. It would be an error to suppose that these various characteristics of officers, non-commissioned officers, and men belong to any particular time or country. They will always occur, at all times, and amongst all democratic nations. In every democratic army, the non-commissioned officers will be the worst representatives of the pacific and orderly spirit of the country, and the private soldiers will be the best. The latter will carry with them into military life the strength or weakness of the manners of the nation. They will display a faithful reflection of the community. If that community is ignorant and weak, they will allow themselves to be drawn by their leaders into disturbances, either unconsciously or against their will. If it is enlightened and energetic, the community will itself keep them within the bounds of order. CHAPTER Twenty Four. Causes which render democratic armies weaker than other armies at the outset of a campaign, and more formidable in protracted warfare. Any army is in danger of being conquered at the outset of a campaign, after a long peace. Any army which has long been engaged in warfare has strong chances of victory. This truth is peculiarly applicable to democratic armies. In aristocracies, the military profession, being a privileged career, is held in honour even in time of peace. Men of great talents, great attainments, and great ambition embrace it. The army is in all respects on a level with the nation, and frequently above it. We have seen, on the contrary, that amongst a democratic people, the choicer minds of the nation are gradually drawn away from the military profession, to seek by other paths distinction, power, and especially wealth. After a long peace, and in democratic ages the periods of peace are long, the army is always inferior to the country itself. In this state it is called into active service, and until war has altered it, there is danger for the country as well as for the army. I have shown that in democratic armies, and in time of peace, the rule of seniority is the supreme and inflexible law of advancement. This is not only a consequence, as I have before observed, of the constitution of these armies, but of the constitution of the people, and it will always occur. Again, as amongst these nations the officer derives his position in the country solely from his position in the army, and as he draws all the distinction and the competency he enjoys from the same source, he does not retire from his profession, or is not superannuated, till towards the extreme close of life. The consequence of these two causes is that when a democratic people goes to war after a long interval of peace, all the leading officers of the army are old men. I speak not only of the generals, but of the non-commissioned officers, who have most of them been stationary, or have only advanced step by step. It may be remarked with surprise that in a democratic army after a long peace, all the soldiers are mere boys, and all the superior officers in declining years, so that the former are wanting in experience the latter in vigour. This is a strong element of defeat, for the first condition of successful generalship is youth. I should not have ventured to say so, if the greatest captain of modern times had not made the observation. 
these two causes do not act in the same manner upon aristocratic armies as men are promoted in them by right of birth much more than by right of seniority there are in all ranks a certain number of young men who bring to their profession all the early vigour of body and mind again as the men who seek for military honours amongst an aristocratic people enjoy a settled position in civil society they seldom continue in the army until old age overtakes them after having devoted the most vigorous years of youth to the career of arms they voluntarily retire and spend at home the remainder of their maturer years a long peace not only fills democratic armies with elderly officers but it also gives to all the officers habits both of body and mind which renders them unfit for actual service the man who has long lived amidst the calm and lukewarm atmosphere of democratic manners can at first ill adapt himself to the harder toils and sterner duties of warfare and if he has not absolutely lost the taste for arms at least he has assumed a mode of life which unfits him for conquest amongst aristocratic nations the ease of civil life exercises less influence on the manners of the army because amongst those nations the aristocracy commands the army and an aristocracy however plunged in luxurious pleasures has always many other passions besides that of its own well-being and to satisfy those passions more thoroughly its well-being will be readily sacrificed i have shown that in democratic armies in time of peace promotion is extremely slow the officers at first support this state of things with impatience they grow excited restless exasperated but in the end most of them make up their minds to it those who have the largest share of ambition and of resources quit the army others adapting their tastes and their desires to their scanty fortunes ultimately look upon the military profession in a civil point of view the quality they value most in it is the competency and security which attend it their whole notion of the future rests upon the certainty of this little provision and all they require is peaceably to enjoy it thus not only does a long peace fill an army with old men but it frequently imparts the views of old men to those who are still in the prime of life i have also shown that amongst democratic nations in time of peace the military profession is held in little honour and indifferently followed this want of public favour is a heavy discouragement to the army it weighs down the minds of the troops and when war breaks out at last they cannot immediately resume their spring and vigour no similar cause of moral weakness occurs in aristocratic armies there the officers are never lowered either in their own eyes or in those of their countrymen because independently of their military greatness they are personally great but even if the influence of peace operated on the two kinds of armies in the same manner the results would still be different when the officers of an aristocratic army have lost their warlike spirit and the desire of raising themselves by service they still retain a certain respect for the honour of their class and an old habit of being foremost to set an example but when the officers of a democratic army have no longer the love of war and the ambition of arms nothing whatever remains to them i am therefore of opinion that when a democratic people engages in a war after a long peace it incurs much more risk of defeat than any other nation but it ought not easily to be cast down by its reverses for the chances of success for such an army are increased by the duration of the war when a war has at length by its long continuance roused the whole community from their peaceful occupations and ruined their minor undertakings the same passions which made them attach so much importance to the maintenance of peace will be turned to arms 
War, after it has destroyed all modes of speculation, becomes itself the great and sole speculation, to which all the ardent and ambitious desires which equality engenders are exclusively directed. Hence it is that the self-same democratic nations which are so reluctant to engage in hostilities sometimes perform prodigious achievements when once they have taken the field. As the war attracts more and more of public attention, and is seen to create high reputations and great fortunes in a short space of time, the choicest spirits of the nation enter the military profession. All the enterprising, proud, and martial minds, no longer of the aristocracy solely, but of the whole country, are drawn in this direction. As the number of competitors for military honours is immense, and war drives every man to his proper level, great generals are always sure to spring up. A long war produces upon a democratic army the same effects that a revolution produces upon a people. It breaks through regulations, and allows extraordinary men to rise above the common level. Those officers whose bodies and minds have grown old in peace are removed or superannuated, or they die. In their stead a host of young men are pressing on, whose frames are already hardened, whose desires are extended and inflamed by active service. They are bent on advancement at all hazards, and perpetual advancement. They are followed by others with the same passions and desires, and after these are others yet unlimited by aught but the size of the army. The principle of equality opens the door of ambition to all, and death provides chances for ambition. Death is constantly thinning the ranks, making vacancies, closing and opening the career of arms. There is, moreover, a secret connection between the military character and the character of democracies, which war brings to light. The men of democracies are naturally passionately eager to acquire what they covet, and to enjoy it on easy conditions. They, for the most part, worship chance, and are much less afraid of death than of difficulty. This is the spirit which they bring to commerce and manufactures, and this same spirit, carried with them to the field of battle, induces them willingly to expose their lives in order to secure in a moment the rewards of victory. No kind of greatness is more pleasing to the imagination of a democratic people than military greatness, a greatness of vivid and sudden lustre, obtained without toil, by nothing but the risk of life. Thus, whilst the interests and the tastes of the members of a democratic community divert them from war, their habits of mind fit them for carrying on war well. They soon make good soldiers, when they are roused from their business and their enjoyments. If peace is peculiarly hurtful to democratic armies, war secures to them advantages which no other armies ever possess, and these advantages, however little felt at first, cannot fail in the end to give them the victory. An aristocratic nation, which in a contest with a democratic people does not succeed in ruining the latter at the outset of the war, always runs a great risk of being conquered by it. End of Part 3 Chapter 24